Tonight, we are going to finish the study of Ephesians, um, <laughs> the last part. Um, it's taken ten times um, to get us to this place, um, but um, I've really enjoyed studying it, and I hope that you've also enjoyed um, hearing this teaching. So for those of you who have come in late, those not into this service but into the actual teaching, um, I'll give the introduction that, that I, I normally give, uh, just so we're all on the same page in terms of the background. The book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Gentile churches in Ephesus. Um, there were two types of people in the world, according to the Jews at that time, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. A Gentile was anybody who wasn't a Jew. And they didn't really see eye to eye. Um, There's a lot of conflict. There was a lot of, uh, um, yeah, friction between the two sides. Paul was a Jew, a former Pharisee, and had been taught perfectly all the laws and commandments of God and of the Pharisees. When we start looking at the book of Ephesians... Um, we come to realize that it's split into two parts. The first three chapters talk about how God has made a way for the Gentiles to be saved along with the Jews, not instead of, but along with the Jews as well, and how awesome and incredible a privilege that is. The last three chapters contain instruction and warning against the things of the world which come naturally to the Gentiles and also the things of God which don't come, which don't come naturally to the Gentiles. This epistle was written directly to the Gentile churches, so it contains instructions on things that mostly pertain to the Gentiles and the way that Gentiles think and have been brought up. And we're Gentiles. I don't think there's any Jews in this place tonight, so we identify with the Gentile people. So this is an epistle to us, and we can get an awful lot out of it when we look into it for our own personal lives. We see evidence of every single issue in the book of Ephesians, in people around us today who don't follow God. The Jews already had the law of God from generation to generation. They knew what was acceptable to God and what wasn't. But then we had come to the church age and people who have had no exposure to God, His ways, His concepts, His precepts, have now been... There's a way made for them to be saved. And so transferring those concepts to the church, to the normal Jewish people, was easy. But the Gentiles had to be taught from scratch. And that's why Paul spent a lot of time in detail into instructing these Gentiles in the ways of God. In our last lesson, we finished with Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9. And we talked about the relationships between children and their parents, along with employers and employees, and how we should be able to be Christian in all situations. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, which is where we're going to pick up, continues on in talking about one of the most famous scripture passages in the Bible. It talks about the whole armor of God. In January 2017, the theme for the Pentecostal Herald, which is a monthly uh, magazine uh, by the United Pentecostal Church International, that particularly aims to challenge, inspire, and inform children of God, and particularly ministers in the church. The theme of that issue was the armor of God. 
In that issue, I learned a lot of things that I had not known before about the armour of God um, and the armour in the Roman times and how it applies to the church in the scripture passages we're about to read. So in a few places, I've used excerpts from these articles as a basis for talking about this, and we'll get to that as we go on. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Paul wasn't telling us to do something that was impossible. There is a way to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. God didn't set us up to fail. God gave us everything that we need to be strong and to have power in his name. He has given us power. He's given us authority. He has given us the means to overcome everything in this earth. So his instruction to us, his commandment to us to be strong and to have power in his might, that's something that is should be for every single believer. That's something that should almost come naturally as much as the things of God come naturally, but it should be something that is evident in the, um, the Christian believer's life. Put on the whole armor of God. So not just one of the bits, not just a couple of the bits, not all except for one of the bits, but the whole armor of God. We need it all. If we're going to be a soldier, we're going to need the whole entire armor of God. Why? That you may, may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We need the armor of God. And there are times when we're going to get, it seems like, all hell against us. It's going to, it's going to seem like what's going on we have no idea what's going on but when we have all of the armor of god we can stand even when it seems impossible to move forward we are able to stand against the walls of the devil and we don't have to be um taken up by his trickery we can just stand and we don't have to be deceived by the devil as much as he tries to trick us and tries to lie to us we can just stand against the walls of the devil when we have the full armor of God on. Verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The Bible says that we're in a wrestling match. It says we wrestle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against these principalities, these powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So it's not a physical wrestling match, but it's a spiritual wrestling match. It didn't say that we could choose to be in this match, but that we are in this match. By following God, there are things that we'll always be wrestling in our lives. They won't always be the same things, but there will always be a spiritual battle because there are always going to be two forces against each other until Jesus comes back. Based on an article in the issue of the Pentecostal Herald titled The Real Struggle by Julie Long, there are three things about wrestling that you should know. Number one, wrestling involves close personal contact. Participants can't view it from a distance. If challengers refuse to engage in the match, they are disqualified. It's not an option to try to remove yourself from the fight or the battle. You're in it whether you like it or not. The battle will get up close and personal to you. It might enter areas of your life that you'd rather it wouldn't, but 
It might wound you in places where it hurts, but giving up isn't an option. We need to stand strong that we may stand against the walls of the devil. Number two, wrestling will test two things, strength, both, both physical and mental, and balance. Spiritually, the wrestling will test just how strong we are for Jesus in our hearts and in our minds and how balanced our walk with God is. If we don't have the right balance, if we are too worldly or our focus is on the wrong things or we can't overcome sin, we are at a huge disadvantage as we are already unbalanced heading into the fight. And number three, the objective of wrestling is to throw down your opponent. In the modern game, each opponent tries to pin the other down and force them to submit. So, what about the things that we wrestle against? These principalities, these powers, these spiritual wickedness in high places. They seem pretty formidable, even scary. How can we hope to overcome these powers that are greater than us on our own? First, let's look at our Savior and example, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is seated in heavenly places as a declaration that ultimate victory over the enemy is confirmed. Ephesians 1 and 20 says that which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Principalities and powers can't separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, 38 says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus Christ reigns far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 says, Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That's pretty comprehensive. And he's not just a little bit over it. He's far above it. He is conquered. He is victorious over all principalities and powers, anything that could be named. And he's head over all principality and power. Colossians 2.10 says, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Not only that, God controls the activity of principalities and powers. Colossians 1.16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So they're all created to actually worship him, to submit themselves to him. And at the end of the age, Jesus will terminate their rule. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. And in Revelation 20 and 10 it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's nothing that's not going to be conquered in the end. The Bible also says that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers at Calvary. Colossians 2 and verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show over them, of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Jesus has destroyed all principalities and powers. He has all victory, all power over all principalities and powers. 
in this world and in anything that could ever be named. He has the authority and the power. So we know that Jesus has all power, control and authority over principalities and powers. But where do we fit into all of this? The Bible says that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. The one that has all power has made us conquerors in all things. The Bible says that believers sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And Ephesians 2.6, And hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Jesus has all authority and power and He has raised us up into that place as well. And God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So, we also are raised up into a situation where we have the authority and the power that, that Jesus has, and He has given us power to overcome all of these principalities, powers, the spiritual wickedness. He has given us the authority and the power to raise over everything that can come against us. And that is what we fight against, we wrestle against, but God has given us the victory when we go in His name and when we put on the whole armor of God. Let us take full advantage of our heavenly places position. Let's not go into battle thinking, am I going to win it? We know we're going to win it because God, Jesus, is on our side. It's our inheritance as sons and daughters of King Jesus. Ephesians 6 and verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Whenever the enemy comes against us, there are going to be times that we we don't know what's going on. And there are going to be times when we have no idea which way is up or down, but God hasn't called us to always walk forward. God has called us to stand when we need to stand. And when we can walk forward, when the enemy is defeated and we can pursue after the enemy, then we can run. But when the enemy is coming full against us, we can stand our ground. One of the most important things in battle is for soldiers to stand their ground. Because if the soldiers don't stand their ground, if they run the other way, then the enemy starts moving forward. They progress forward. And the more the enemy gets a foothold, the, the worse it is for the soldiers. They get pushed further and further back. And eventually they have to make a final stand somewhere. But when we keep our ground, when we hold our ground, when we do everything that we can and it doesn't seem to make any progress, then we just stand. And we just stand and God will give us the victory. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14. Stand therefore, having your loins good about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Based on the article, Don't Give Up, Gird Up by Harold Linder, Paul started talking about the armor by talking about the belts of truth. Gird up, that's a belt. He didn't talk about the mighty sword or the defensive shield, but the belt. Why? Why did he start with the belt? It doesn't seem like it's a particularly important part of any piece of armor. Why? Because in the Roman days, it was the belt that holds all the other pieces of armor together. 
First, as a part of the belt, there were four to eight narrow leather strips that hung down in front of the soldier, protecting his reproductive organs. The belt also identified the wearer as a soldier. The cloak and tunic didn't differ much from that of the wealthy citizens of the empire. So it was the belt that made them stand out. They were a soldier. It signified that the wearer had a special purpose and that he belonged to the empire and that he was armed at all times. The soldier's belt also carried a load. It included the scabbard for the soldier's sword so the sword could rest freely on the belt, always ready for use. He didn't have to carry that sword all the time. It hung on the belt. It also served as a resting place for the weight of the shield as the army marched toward battle. You're holding a heavy shield. You don't want to hold it as you're marching. You don't want to have your arm sore before it gets to the battle. You don't want to have your arm about to fall off when you're about to go into battle. You have it resting on the, the, the belt. Without the belt, the soldier's strength will be depleted by carrying the heavy armament to the battle, rendering both his weapon and his defense ineffective during the battle. The belt also served as a foundation, a lashing point for other pieces of the soldier's armor. During battle, if not lashed to the belt, the breastplate would not stay in place during violent movement. Well, for an example, wrestling. And the soldier's torso would be exposed to the enemy's attack. So it was an anchor point as well. It basically was a, a, the focus of the entire armor. Paul knew the significance of starting with the belt. He also purposely related it to truth. He was clearly stating that truth must be the foundation of every Christian's walk with God. Without truth, the shield of faith will tax our strength and will be ineffective when most needed. Without truth, the sword of the Spirit will be wielded without power in battle. Without truth, righteousness will leave us vulnerable at the most critical times. So what is the truth that is being referred to here the Bible says that the Word of God is truth. In Psalms 119, 160 and John 17, 17. We need to believe and follow the Word of God in its complete truth. Not with our own understanding and ideas or other people's understanding and ideas, but with the same power and meaning as when God originally gave it to mankind. That is the truth. That is the truth that we need to have as the foundation for our armor and foundation for going into battle. We need to follow the Word of God in all of its truth. The breastplate of righteousness, based on the article, Protecting Your Heart by Treating Other People Properly, properly by Clifford H. Readout Jr. The breastplate in a Roman soldier's armor was designed to defend and protect the soldier rather than to harm the opponent. The breastplate was made from hardened materials designed to protect the soldier's vital organs and necessary muscles from just below the neck down to the waist, both in the front and the back. The breastplate protected against any weapon or attack that wasn't already diverted by the shield. So our righteousness will not harm the enemy of our souls. It's not an offensive weapon. Our righteousness will protect us. Even if our faith, the shield, fails us, our righteousness will cause that we do not suffer a mortal wound to our heart or to our other vital organs. We will still be able to stand and fight in the battle because of our righteousness. Deference, courtesy, justice, and caring for the needs of the others is the only enduring protection that we have against the base nature of the carnal man. 
Righteousness prevents the poison of selfishness from penetrating and infecting our souls. We need to make sure that we have righteousness with us at all times. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 15 And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The protection for the feet and ankles for Roman soldiers consisted of two parts. One, the sandals or shoes, which were probably made so as to cover the foot and which often were fitted with nails or armed with spikes to make the hold firm in the ground or with greaves that were fitted to the legs and designed to defend them from any danger. These greaves or boots, as is referenced in 1 Samuel 17 and 6, were made of brass and were in almost universal use amongst the Greeks and the Romans. The whole idea of putting on the armor of God is that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. How would it be possible to stand if we had no protection on our feet or our legs? It would make our feet and legs an easy target for the enemy. Damage to our feet or legs would severely cripple us in any fight. We wouldn't be able to stand up, to dodge effectively, to pursue our enemies once they are on the run, or to march further forward in battle. We would be completely immobilized and crippled and useless in the battle. So what are these shoes? What is the preparation of the gospel of peace? Isaiah 52 and 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. In Romans 10.13 it also refers to that. Um, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. We are all called to preach the word to others, to witness about Jesus in our day-to-day lives. That experience prepares us and helps to soften the impact on our feet from constantly marching forward. It helps to give us firm footing in the faith when we encounter the enemy of our souls. After all, you really know what you're talking about when you start to teach someone else about it. If you've ever tried to teach someone something, you need to know what you're talking about. And you'll get questions about all sorts of aspects from all different angles. And if you don't know it, you soon learn to know it because you are in a different position. You don't just know it. You don't just follow it. You don't just believe it. But now you're teaching it. You're teaching others about it. Even if you don't know everything at the beginning, you will get questions that will cause you to study more and know what you are teaching better. And the more you learn and experience, the firmer your footing and foundation will be in the gospel of peace. And that will help you to fight your own spiritual battles, knowing your foundation, having that foundation of of the gospel and preaching the gospel of Jesus. Ephesians 6 and 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench the fiery darts, all the fiery darts of the wicked. Based on the article Above All the Shield by Kelly Middleton, the Roman shield was rectangular in shape, constructed of wooden pieces glued together and covered with canvas or leather. A modest-sized shield would stand 42 inches high by 16 inches wide. Sorry, I didn't take the time to uh, convert that. Large enough to cover a man's body by crouching behind it. So 
it had the ability to be some decent protection in a battle. The shield not only protected the life of the soldier, but it also helped preserve the longevity of the rest of the armor. If the shield could deflect the blow of the enemy's attack, the pieces of armor strapped to the soldier's body could remain unscathed. Simply put, the shield was an extra but versatile barrier between the soldier and his enemies. Not only that, but especially in Roman times, they, they uh, well, I guess they invented formations, different formations, where when you put a group of soldiers together, they were more powerful than just one soldier on their own. There was a turtle-like formation that was particularly powerful that the Romans used called a testudo. Um, and basically, it had a group of soldiers in the middle, more or less in a rectangular, um, well, in a rectangular rows and stuff. And the front soldiers put their shields in front. The soldiers on the side put their shields there. Soldiers in the middle put their shields on the top. And the soldiers in the back put, well, I'm not sure they bothered about the back because they were always moving forward. But it became a formidable, um, <laughs> a formidable uh, attack formation because there were very few gaps in this formation. And they just went forward and they, they conquered. And, and, and that was, was one of the most powerful things that the Romans used in their battles. So together, they were able to do more than just on their own. A shield is often seen primarily as a weapon of defense, but it had powerful offensive qualities as well. A metal knob called a boss adorned the shield's center and was used to knock the enemy off balance at close range. The size of the shield was big enough to protect the body, yet small enough for the soldier to pick up and advance toward the enemy. So when the enemy seems to bombard us on every side, remember these three points. Number one, the shield of faith is a voluntary piece of armor. For it to be effective in our lives, we must pick it up. Number two, only when we unify with others can the shield of faith be used to its fullest potential. Your shield could help protect your brother or sister in the battle and vice versa. They can help protect you by their faith. Ultimately, when, number three, ultimately when we place our trust solely in God, He is our shield. His word declares this time and time again. For example, Psalms 3 and 3 um, and Psalms 28, 7, and Proverbs 35, and verse 5. May we all be diligent in taking up the shield of faith. The enemy's defeat is guaranteed when we use it. Notice that the verse doesn't say we have the ability to quench most of the fiery darts of the wicked. It says all. Every accusation, every temptation, every attack, all. All will be quenched when we take up the shield of faith and use it in the battle. That is a promise that God has given us when we take up the shield of faith. Ephesians 6 and 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Based on the article, The Helmet of Salvation by Joel Ocean, the helmet is one of the most vital pieces of armor for a soldier as it protects the brain from injury. If the brain is harmed, the rest of the body suffers dramatically. Man was created with a cranium designed to protect the natural brain from harm, but is part of a fleshly body subject to death and can easily be cracked when encountering enough force. This is true of our spiritual man as well. Just as the physical cranium is not sufficient to protect our brains from all harm, 
Our fleshly efforts at self-preservation are not sufficient to protect our minds from spiritual danger. We need the helmet of salvation. Romans 12 and 2 says, And be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Ephesians 4.22 and 23 says, That ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's often said that our salvation testimony is the most powerful tool that we have in witnessing. People can dispute our doctrine, our methods, our motive, but they can't dispute our own experience. Likewise, Satan can attack us from many different angles. But when we experience full Bible salvation, nobody can tell us that it was all a fake, a sham, or a lie. That powerful experience will help to protect our minds from the worst attacks of the enemy in the darkest of nights. The sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is already explained in the Scriptures. It is the Word of God. The sword is also the only completely offensive part of the armor. However, when used skillfully, a sword can also be used offensively as well. Once we are saved in the full gospel truth with our heads protected by that helmet of salvation, we are able to use the word of God powerfully and effectively. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When we allow God to direct us in presenting the Word of God to others, the Word of God has the power to speak directly to their own particular situations and to the depths of their hearts without us even knowing it. The Word of God has life. It has power. It can overcome any situation and circumstance. Satan came to tempt Jesus three times. One time he even used Scripture himself, and Jesus defeated him with Scripture every day single time. Satan can't stand against the Word of God. He might bombard you for a time in different areas, but keep using Scripture. Keep fighting that fire using the Word of God and stand fast and you will completely defeat him. He will have no choice but to flee in the end. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Based on the article Soldier Up by Laurie Wagner, what do we do once we put on all of the armor? Do we just stand around and wait for the battle? No, we have a job to do. We go straight into battle through prayer. You see, Christians have a mandate. We are called to pray. Then pray again. Then pray some more. Spiritual reality, like it or not, is that the church is in ongoing warfare. There is no neutral territory. Once you're in the church, there is going to be a battle because Satan hates everything that we stand for. The battle between good and evil began in Genesis and will be ongoing until Jesus swallows up time in eternity in complete and final victory. With a warfare mindset, you and I must soldier up in prayer. Luke 18 and verse 1 says, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not 
to faint. Praying always doesn't mean that we should be praying every single second of every single minute of every single day whenever we're awake. That is a physical impossibility. What it means is that we should have a regular and consistent prayer life. We should never completely stop praying or give up or faint. Praying always should also be an attitude for us. There are bad attitudes and there are good attitudes. This is a good attitude, in case you're wondering. Which means that we should always be in a state of readiness to pray. We should have an attitude of connectivity with God so that you are always in the right position to hear from or speak to the Lord wherever you are or whatever you find yourself doing. While we have jobs that require our devoted attention for long periods of time, we should always have the attitude that we are doing what we're doing in service for God. We talked about employers, employees in our last um, session in, in, in the part number nine. In that way, we are approaching all of life with the right perspective in that everything we do or say is in service for and to God. Ephesians 6 and verse 19. And for me, so Paul is asking for the Ephesians to pray for him as well, that utterance may be given unto me and that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul's petition to the church to pray for him gives us insight on how we can pray for our spiritual leaders today. That they would, one, know what to say, two, have the courage to speak God's words at the right time, and three, share the good news that salvation is for everyone. Paul was in prison at the time he wrote this epistle, but he didn't ask the Ephesians to pray for his release from prison. That isn't what was foremost on his mind. There were other things that were much more important than his physical freedom. The preaching and furtherance of the kingdom of God was the sole thing on Paul's mind as he wrote these words. It shows Paul's true heart and the heart of a spiritual leader fully following Jesus. And then Ephesians finishes off with some final greetings. But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things. Paul used Tychicus to um, deliver a few of the, the epistles to his brethren or to different churches around. He was a trusted man of God. And by continually sending him, they, the people that received him knew that he was a good man and they got to know him and there was a trust built in his continual service. Whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. And then in verse 23, Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul wanted all of God's people to have peace, to have love and to have faith. And that is something that will be cornerstones of uh, a, a child of God's experience in walking with God. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So, that finishes the book of Ephesians. But, that isn't where it ends.
And the Apostle Paul, in his final closing of that book, he talks about what we need. We need the armor of God. He left it to the end because it was important. It was something that every one of us needed to have. It was something that every one of us needed to pick up and to go forward, to stand when we can do nothing else. And if I could get someone to the piano, please. God has called us all to take up our armor and to follow Him. And then once we've taken up our armor, He's called us to pray. And He's called us into service. He's called us to be what He wants us to be, to fully become a child of God. Because we are in a battle. We are in a warfare. We are, we are needing to, to, to stand up and fight the battles that God has given us to fight. It's no good if we run away at the first opportunity. It's no good if we throw up our hands in the air at the slightest bit of, of persecution. Some people just see the smallest things as persecution. And their walk with God is very, very limited. They, they don't get past the very, very early steps of, of walking with God. They don't realize the power that can be had when they follow Jesus. When they take up that armor, they don't realize the power that Jesus has already given us. And so I wonder, have you been putting on the, all of the armor of God? Have you been praying once you've put on that whole armor of God? God has called us to this, this battle. We, we are in the battle, whether we like it or not. If we haven't been partaking, if we haven't been taking up the armor, if we haven't been praying, then we've been a liability and a burden to, to what we could truly be. God has called us to be more. God has called us to be his servants. God has called us into this spiritual warfare. And if you haven't been doing that, now is the time. Now is the time to make up your minds, to say, I'm going to do everything that God has called me to do. I want to stand up. I want to be counted. I want to be part of the kingdom of God moving forward. I want to be part of what God has for the church. I want to move forward with my brothers and sisters. I want to protect their sides, their front, their back. I want to do everything that God wants me to do. And you have no idea the impact that you can have on other people by taking up this challenge, by being that encouragement, by, by doing what God has called you to do. So if you want to get closer to God, if you want to take up the armor of God, if you realize that you've been lacking in some areas, then I invite you to come. I invite you to talk to God. I invite you to come and take that place of power and authority that God has placed in our lives, that parent authority that He has called us to sit with Him in high places with Him.